This morning's scripture comes from Numbers 23, verses 13 through 26. Then Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will not see them all, but only the outskirts of their camp. And from there, curse them for me. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this word. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the Moabite officials. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? Then he spoke his message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, did I not tell you I must do whatever the Lord says? This is the word of the Lord. One of our deepest impulses is the desire for control, but also one of the most stubborn realities in our life is our lack of control. And that creates a huge struggle in our lives. One of my favorite illustrations of this is from a movie called Instinct. Anthony Hopkins plays an anthropologist named Ethan, who studies gorillas, but when he murders some gorilla poachers, he gets put in a mental institution. Cuba Gooding Jr. plays a psychologist named Theo who tries to get Ethan to say what happened. But Ethan doesn't want to cooperate, so one day Theo, the psychologist, gets really angry. He says, don't you realize I have the power to get you free? And Ethan looks at him and says, so you're the one in control, huh? And Theo says, yeah, I'm the one in control. And before he knows what's happened, um, Ethan gets Theo in a headlock, face down on the table, and has duct tape over his mouth. And he says, so you're the one in control, huh? Who's really in control? Am I? Are you? The guards outside? He puts a pad of paper on the table in front of Theo, and he says, now this is going to be a simple test, pass or fail, life or death. I want you to write down, what did I take from you? What have you lost? And Theo picks up the pen very nervously, and he starts writing C-O-N-T-R-O-L. 
control. Wrong, Ethan says, and he rips the page away. He says, you have control? What do you have control over? The volume on your stereo? The air conditioning in your car? Okay, you were nervous. Let me give you another chance. Write down, what did I take from you? What have you lost? And this time, Theo writes, F-R-E-E-D-O-M, freedom. But Ethan says, wrong again. You thought you were free? What has you tied up in little knots at night? Is it ambition? You're not free. All right, one more chance. I want you to write down, what have you lost? What did I take from you? And this time, Theo writes, M-Y-I-L-L-O-S-I-O-N-S, my illusions. And Ethan says, congratulations, you're a student after all. What did Theo learn? That we are not actually in control. We only have the illusion of control. And yet, it is almost impossible for us to give up the, the effort to try to control the people, places, and things around us. And not only does uh, our desire, it's to put the world in a headlock, as it were, that desire has us in a headlock. And not only does it make our world worse, it makes us anxious and miserable. And yet we still won't give it up, which means that our anxiety and misery won't let go of us. This passage we just read actually shows us the way out of that. And even more, it shows us the fulfillment of all the things we're seeking in the first place. How? Well, let's find out by walking through this story and seeing three things. This story shows us our desire for blessing, our struggle with blessing, and lastly, the mountain of blessing. Our desire for blessing, our struggle with blessing, and the mountain of blessing. So first, let's take a look at our desire for blessing. Um, This story is all about a paranoid king named Balak who tries to get a famous prophet named Balaam to curse Israel for him. But Balaam, the prophet, keeps telling him, look, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. So every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, instead all that comes out is a blessing. For instance, in verse 20, uh, Balaam says this, I have received a command to bless. God has blessed and I cannot change it. This whole story is all about God's intention to bless Israel. Now what does that mean? To understand, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, God creates this world to be a place of blessing. Literally, when he creates the first humans, it says this. It says, and God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, as modern readers, our problem is that um, when we hear this word blessed, our understanding of this word is utterly um, superficial and trivial. I mean, anything that can be reduced to a hashtag, we've already trivialized it. When we hear the word blessing, we think, oh, that means things are going the way I want. It means I'm having my best life now. It means going viral on social media or material prosperity or good health or personal fulfillment or great sex or a sugar daddy or a smoking hot wife or whatever, but it's totally superficial and trivial. But in the Bible, blessing means something completely different. First, it means to see inside something and see the truest, deepest nature of something. It's to look inside the caterpillar and see the butterfly. It's to look inside the seed and see the rose. But second, blessing means speaking words that summon forth 
that truest, deepest nature of something. And you realize that that's actually tapping into one of our deepest longings as human beings. In our modern culture, we call it um, the quest for authenticity. We want to become our, our most authentic selves. For instance, there's a famous philosopher named Charles Taylor who describes it like this. He says, authenticity means that there is a certain way of being human that is my way. I am called upon to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's, but this gives a new importance to being true to myself. If I am not, I miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me. This is the powerful moral ideal that has come down to us. Now, does this language sound familiar? Of course it does. But when we talk about being true to myself, that's really the language of blessing, that there is a, a, this desire to see deep inside of ourselves, to see the truest, deepest nature of ourself, and then to express that self, to become that self to the world around us. Here's the really mind-blowing thing about the Bible. Not only does God want us to become our truest, deepest selves, God wants the whole cosmos to become its truest, deepest self. In the Bible, blessing means God's intention, not only that you and I would become the selves we're meant to be, but that the whole cosmos would become the place it's meant to be. So in Genesis 1, God is summoning forth the truest, deepest nature of you and of me and of the whole universe. But then in Genesis chapter 3, the first humans rebel against God, and as a result, everything starts falling apart. So that instead of being the place of blessing that it was created to be, this world is now under a curse. And that leads us to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, friends, we will not understand the Bible, and we certainly won't understand the book of Numbers if we don't understand Genesis chapter 12. Trying to understand the Bible without Genesis 12 is like trying to understand Star Wars without knowing who Luke Skywalker really is. Wink, wink. In Genesis chapter 12, God is looking at a world that has completely fallen apart, but instead of scrapping the whole thing, he, God comes up with a rescue plan. It's the turning point in the whole biblical narrative. His rescue plan is to call this guy named Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel, and he promises three big things to Abraham. Number one, he promises, Abraham, I'm going I'm to make you a great people. Number two, I'm going to lead you to a land. And number three, and probably most importantly of all, through you, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. People, land, blessing. Here in the book of Numbers, God is leading the people of Israel, that's promise number one, through the wilderness to the promised land, that's promise number two, and he's doing it all so that he can fulfill promise number three, to make this world a place of blessing again. Friends, do you understand what this means? We have this little idea in our modern world called progress. For instance, Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In other words, we know intuitively that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be, and we long for this world to become the place it's meant to be. Where does that idea come from? We're looking at it. It comes from God. It comes from the Bible, and it's radically different from any other worldview out there. It's, it's not the karmic cycle which says this world is an illusion and we need to be liberated from it. 
It's also not atheism, which says this world is all there is, and eventually it's just going to burn up, the second law of thermodynamics. Friends, how, did we, how do we know that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be? And why do we long for this world to become the way it's supposed to be? The reason is because the Bible tells us that once upon a time it was, and one day it will be again. We long for that. It's our desire for blessing, and that leads to our second point. We've just seen our desire for blessing, but secondly, we need to look at our struggle with blessing. Why does Balak want Balaam, this prophet, to curse Israel? Because he's afraid. I mean, Balak sees this mass of people on the border of his land, and he freaks out. And really, Balak is just like any human being. He wants the blessing. He wants the security, the significance, the happiness, and the flourishing. He wants the blessing. We all do. But when Balak looks at Israel, the, the problem is he thinks Israel is threatening all of that. So what does he do? The same thing that you and I do whenever our desires are threatened. He tries to get control over it. And look at the lengths that he goes to do it. Notice he tells Balaam, come with me to another place where you can see them. And from there, curse Israel for me. Now, here's what's happening. They already tried to curse Israel once, and, and all Balaam could do was bless Israel. So here Balaam's thinking, okay, we've got to change the technique. Let's try it from a different angle. Maybe that'll work. Notice he also says this, uh, or it says this, that he took Balaam to the top of Pisgah, which is a mountain, and there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Now here's what's going on. In the ancient world, um, people would make offerings and sacrifices to the gods as a way of tr trying to get the gods' favor, to procure the blessing of the gods on their life. It was a way of trying to get control over God. I mean, in other words, Balak's whole thing is he, he's all about technique. He's thinking, if I can make the right offerings, if I make enough offerings, if I say the right words, if I say the right words from the right place, if I get the technique right, then I can get God in a headlock. I can get control over the outcome. I can get the blessing that I want. Now, we're modern scientific people, which means that we look at this and we scoff. We, we get all grandiose and largiloquent, and we say, these are just primitive, superstitious people. Of course they believe in stuff like that. The power of blessings and curses, magic incantations, sacrifices to the gods. That's all just magical thinking, but we know better. Friends, one of the main questions this passage is pressing, even on us modern people, probably especially on us modern people, is the question, do we? Do we really know better? Or do we, have we just substituted a different technique for trying to get control over the world? For instance, um, C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous Christian writers of all time. Do you know what his day gig was? C.S. Lewis was a world-renowned expert in medieval literature at Oxford University. In one of his books, he says that a lot of people think that ancient medieval people, you know, they believed in magic. But then science came along and swept it all away. In reality, he says, those who have studied the period know better. The magical endeavor and the scientific endeavor were born of the same impulse. For the wise people of old, the problem had been how to conform the soul 
to reality, and the solution had been self-discipline and virtue. But for magic and science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of humanity. The solution is a technique. C.S. Lewis is saying that all of our modern science, medicine, technology, politics, social programs, economic policies, that all of that is simply our modern version of trying to do the same thing that ancient people were doing with magic, get control over the world. In fact, in many ways, it's we modern people who are even more um, committed and addicted to trying to control the world. For instance, Patrick Deneen is a professor of political science at Notre Dame University. He wrote a book a few years ago that got quite a bit of attention. It's called Why Liberalism Failed. And by the way, liberalism does not mean what we might normally think of as progressives or progressive politics. Liberalism, it means the entire political philosophy of the modern West for the past 250 years or so. That means that both progressives and conservatives all belong to what he's calling liberalism. Patrick Deneen says that one of the main features of liberalism is a desire to get control over nature. So here's how he describes it at one point in the book. He says, conservatives support nearly any utilitarian use of the world for economic ends. Progressives increasingly approve nearly any technical means of liberating humans from the biological nature of our own bodies. Today's political debates occur largely and almost exclusively between these two varieties of liberals. Now, that's a mouthful, but here's what he's saying, and he's right. We look at conservatives and progressives, and we think they're in deep disagreement with each other. But in reality, they are both operating according to the same fundamental liberal worldview, which says the most important thing is for individuals to be liberated from nature so that they can live their best lives now and become their most authentic selves. That is a liberal worldview, and everybody in the modern West is operating according to this liberal worldview. Now, listen, I know that over the last few minutes, I've been um, asking you to do some heavy mental lifting, but you're smart people, and the basic point is really simple. It's not that ancient people like Balak and Balaam were primitive, superstitious, and unenlightened, and that we modern people are so progressive and enlightened. No. The basic point is that all people, both ancient and modern, were all addicted to control. We look at the, uh, the problems of our lives, we look at the problems of our world, and we're just like Balak, the king. We think, oh, we just need to change the technique, and then we can get control. We can get God in a headlock. We can get nature in a headlock. It never occurs to us that maybe the thing that really needs to get changed is ourselves. Friends, our desire is for blessing. We desire for this world to become the place that we long for it to be. Our struggle with blessing is that we try to get control over that. And yet the more we try to control it, the more that control just slips through our fingers. How? Why? And is there any solution for any of this? That leads to our last point. We've seen our desire for blessing. We've just looked at our struggle with blessing. But lastly, we need to take a look at the mountain of blessing. Um, let's actually take a look at the, um, the content of God's blessing on Israel in this passage. Remember, here's Balaam. He's up on the mountain, and he's looking down on Israel down below in the valley. And, and Balaam is, is trying to curse Israel, but every time he tries to curse them, all he can do is bless them. 
Every, everything that comes out of his mouth is blessing. So notice Balaam says this, um, no misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. Now, uh, first of all, Jacob is just another name for Israel. But when God says no misfortune is seen, that word misfortune is a word that oftentimes is translated iniquity, as in sin and wrongdoing. But also it's often translated the way it is here, misfortune or hardship or trouble. When, when God says, God is saying there is no misfortune, trouble, hardship, or misery in Israel, they are blessed indeed, which is really ironic because if you've been with us through this series, then you know one of the main things we've seen in the book of Numbers is just how sinful and rebellious Israel really is. They are really full of iniquity. And yet, I mean, in, if anything, they actually deserve the curse. And yet God is actually pouring out blessing on them, even though they deserve the curse. Friends, so do we. You know, why are we so addicted to control? It's because the world is falling apart, and we hate that. But why is the world falling apart? We, we touched on this briefly in our first point. It's because the first humans rebelled against God. But what does that mean? You know, there was a, one of the greatest theologians of all time was a, an African bishop named St. Augustine. He had this Latin phrase, uh, incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se. It sounds kind of like a Harry Potter spell. Turn to your neighbor and say, incurvitus in se. You know what you just did? You just told your neighbor your biggest problem. Incurvitus in se means curved in on self. What an image. Do you remember what blessing means? Blessing means to look inside and see the truest, deepest nature of something and then to speak words that summon forth that truest, deepest nature, which really resonates with us as, as modern people because our modern vision of authenticity is all about looking inside and listening to our inner voice, telling us our truest, deepest self, and then expressing that truest, deepest self to the world around us. The tragedy is that our modern vision of authenticity is actually the very essence of being curved in on self. Because the only vision we see is our vision. The only voice we hear is our voice. True authenticity is listening to another voice, the voice of God, telling you who you really are, telling you, um, revealing to you the essence of your truest, deepest nature, and then summoning forth that self into the world. Friends, you know the really amazing thing about this passage? Here's Israel. They're down in the valley, and and, and they're really, they're just like Balak. They're just as curved in on self. They're just as addicted to control. They're just as rebellious against God. And so are we. And yet, here's Balaam up on the mountain. And as hard as he's trying to curse Israel, which they deserve, by the way, all he can do is bless them. Why? Because that's the way the gospel works. Think about this with me. Both traditional religion and secularism are all about technique. In other words, if I can just get the right technique, if I can say the right prayers, do the right things, if I can get the science right, then if I get the right technique, then I can get control and I can get the blessing. The only difference between the two is that traditional religion is about trying to get God in a headlock, 
Secularism is about trying to get nature in a headlock, but both of them are deeply invested in trying to get control over the world, control over our lives. That's what they're, they're doing. And, and friends, when we do that, not only does our desire to get the world in a headlock, I mean, we have that, it, it gets us in a headlock, you know? And, and yet, here's God, and He's pouring out blessing on Israel. In other words, our, um, our desire is to get control over the world. And yet, here's God, and He's pouring out this blessing on Israel, because here's Balaam up on the mountain, pouring out blessing upon them. We think that the, the way to get control over the world is it's all about technique. God is saying, no, our religion and secularism both operate according to the basic principle of technique, but the gospel functions according to the basic operating principle of grace. Notice how Balaam puts it at the end. He says, there is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. Divinations and evil omens, you know what this is saying? He's saying basically there's no technique, religious, scientific, or otherwise, that can ever prevail against God's intention to bless That means that no matter how curved in on self we are, no matter how addicted to control we are, no matter how rebellious against God we are, God's deepest, most passionate desire is to bless you. So notice Balaam says this. He says, the Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He's talking about Israel. In other words, no matter how sinful Israel has been or will continue to be, and they will, God's intention is always to be constantly bringing Israel out of Egypt. Yes, that means bringing them out of physical, political, and economic bondage, but also out of spiritual bondage. Also out of bondage to addiction, to control, technique, and self. That God takes all of our curses and instead of He pours out His blessings on our life. How? Remember, Israel's down in the valley. They're under the curse of sin. And yet here's Balaam up on the mountain turning their curse into a blessing. Friends, centuries later, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe and the very source of all blessing itself, he went up to a different mountain called Mount Calvary. We were down here in the valley under the curse of sin, but Jesus went up on Mount Calvary and there he took the curse that we deserve so that we could receive the blessing he deserved. In this passage, here's Balaam up on the mountain, and he says, it will now be said of Israel, see what God has done. But friends, when we look at Jesus on the cross on Mount Calvary, that's the ultimate place where we say, see what God has done. See how he's bringing us out of Egypt. See how he's bringing us out of bondage. See how he's taking the curses and turning them into a blessing. Friends, if this is true, and it is, then what does all of this mean for you and me today? If you're here this morning and maybe you're spiritually curious, curious about Jesus, maybe you're skeptical about Jesus, maybe you're somewhere in between, but one of the big things this passage is inviting you to do is to take another look at Jesus. The big question for you is when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Remember, Balaam is a prophet. Another word for that is he's a seer. It means somebody who's supposed to see spiritual reality, but Balaam is blind to it. God has to get Balaam up on the mountain so that Balaam can see God, see Israel, see spiritual reality for what it really is. In the same way, we need God to get us up on Mount Calvary in order to see Jesus for who he really is. 
You know, our culture is filled with a lot of different narratives about who Jesus is. Oh, he's a great moral teacher. Oh, Jesus is a revolutionary activist. Oh, Jesus is a spiritual guru. Friends, each one of those narratives is grabbing little bits and pieces of truth about Jesus, but none of those narratives need to crucify Jesus. Friends, the only way you will ever see who Jesus really is is to get up on Mount Calvary and look at him there. You may think you already know who Jesus is, or maybe you know you don't know who he is. You've never explored it, but for, for if that's you anywhere in there, you need to get up on Mount Calvary, and in other words, you need to reckon with the cross of Jesus Christ in order to see who Jesus really is. You may wonder, how do I do that? One easy starting place is pick up one of the Gospels and read it. Another option is, and I would encourage you, please just keep coming back. In fact, we're going to start a whole series in the beginning of the year on who is Jesus. So keep coming back. It's something we're always talking about here. But second, if you're a Christian this morning, um, and really this is for all of us, one of the other big things this passage is teaching us is that we need to learn how to relinquish control and trust God. And of course, the question there is also, oh, how do I do that? One of my favorite parts of this passage is at the very end. It's actually funny. Um, Balaam, this is now the second time that he's tried to curse Israel, and instead all he can do is, is bless Israel. And Balak, the king, is so frustrated with him, he says, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. It's hilarious. He's basically saying, Balaam, if you can't get this God under control, then just stop talking. <laughs> and you realize when we say that, that Balak is actually speaking better than he knows because the best and most appropriate alternative to trying to manipulate and control God is what? Silence. Many of you are in community groups right now, and, and you're reading through a, a little book by Robert Mulholland called Invitation to a Journey. Um, do you remember all the way back at the beginning of the book? It's a book on spiritual formation. Remember Robert Mulholland says that we live in what he calls an objectivizing culture? Do you remember that? An objectivizing culture, he says, is one that views the world primarily as an object out there to be grasped and controlled for our own purposes. You, I mean, really, we know instinctively what this means. When we talk about pornography, it, it objectifies people. It turns them into a tool for our own pleasure. He, Mulholland is saying we live in an objectivizing culture. I mean, that is basically a really good description of our whole modern Western liberal worldview, that we're trying to get control over the world. The world is an object that we use for our own well-being and purposes. How do we diffuse that desire for control? In the chapter that you're um, going to be reading this week, if you're in a group reading through the book, Mulholland says this. He says, the practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our existence. Friends, one of the most powerful spiritual disciplines that you can practice in order to diffuse control in your life is the spiritual discipline of silence. How do you do that? Well, this week's chapter gives you some very simple starting points. But let me just mention one of them for all of us. Mulholland says a very simple way to do this is to pray regularly, free me from care for myself. Free me from care for myself. That we learn to say that prayer throughout the day. Free me from care for myself. That's a prayer that will change you. Do you not think God will answer a prayer like that? Of course he will. Friends, we need to get up on Mount Calvary 
and see what God has done through Jesus. We need to relinquish control of our lives, learn to practice the spiritual discipline of silence, to pray, free me from care for myself. There is no greater liberty, nothing that will set you free from control, from the headlock of control in our lives, from the anxiety and misery that comes along with it. There is no greater liberty than this, and it all comes through Jesus. Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning that even though we're down here in the valley under the curse of sin, that you sent Jesus up onto the mountain of Mount Calvary to hang on a cross, to take the curse that we deserve so that we could receive the blessing he deserves. We praise you this morning, Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning that you would give us eyes um, to see you more clearly, Lord Jesus, and seeing you more clearly, to see more clearly um, the stories and the narratives that are present within our culture that we're constantly swimming in and that are shaping us and controlling us in our desire to be control over the world. Free us from care for ourselves, Lord. Free us from addiction to self, from being curved in on ourselves and from addiction to control. Free us through the saving work of Jesus Christ. He cancels the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. Praise you, Lord Jesus. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.